0: Chapter 16 of Through Russian Snows by G.A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. An Unexpected Meeting Frank Wyatt's work throughout the campaign had been arduous in the extreme. It is true that it was done on horseback instead of on foot, that he had not hunger to contend against, and that for the most part his nights were passed in a shelter of some kind. But from daybreak until sunset, and frequently till midnight, he was incessantly occupied from the moment when Napoleon turned his back on Moscow until the last remnant of his army crossed the frontier, until after the Battle of melo jaro on the 24th of October when the French army owed its safety solely to Coutouseau's refusal to hurl all his forces against it. He had remained at headquarters, where he was assisted in his work by the Earl of Tyre who was now also acting as an aide-de-camp to Sir Robert Wilson. He was a delightful companion and a most gallant young officer, and a fast friendship became established between him and Frank, during the time the russian army was remaining inactive, while napoleon was wasting the precious time at moscow unable to bring himself to acknowledge the absolute failure of his plans caused by the refusal of the russians to treat with him after his occupation of their ancient capital but after Kutuzov had allowed the french to slip past they saw but little of each other for one or the other of them was always with the troops pressing hard on the french rear it being their duty to keep sir robert who was necessarily obliged to stay at headquarters thoroughly informed of all that was going on in front and of the movements both of the french and russian divisions sir robert himself was so utterly disgusted with the obstinacy and it almost seemed deliberate treachery of Kutuzov that for the most part he accompanied general Benningson, who was a prompt and dashing soldier and who with the whole of the russian generals was as furious with the apathy and delays of the worn-out old man who was in command as they had been with those of barclay the english general still acted as the emperor's special representative and kept him fully acquainted with all that was going on alexander was as much dissatisfied as were his generals and soldiers with cotuso's refusal to put an end to the terrible struggle by an action which must have ended in the destruction or capture of napoleon and his army he felt however that he could not at present remove him from his command cotuso was a member of the old nobility who was straining every nerve for the national cause were stripping their estates of their serfs and emptying their coffers into military chests, and who would have greatly resented his removal. The people at large too, overjoyed at the retreat of Napoleon and the success of their arms, and ignorant of all the real circumstances of the case, regarded Cottuso with enthusiastic admiration, and Alexander felt that, great as might be his faults, the injury that would be inflicted by a supersession would be greater than the benefits derived from it. An ample supply of horses had been placed at the disposal of the English general and his aides-de-camp, and Frank, having three always at his orders, was able to ride them by turns, and therefore got through an immense amount of work. The scenes that everywhere met his eyes were far more trying than the fatigues he had to undergo. The hideous barbarities that were perpetuated by the peasants upon the French who fell into their hands filled him with burning indignation and at times placed his life in serious danger when he endeavored to interfere on their behalf. He always started on his rides in the morning with his saddlebags stored with provisions and a small keg of spirits fastened behind him, and these were divided during the day among the unfortunate men, Russians and French alike, who wounded or exhausted had sunk by the way. Innumerable were the appeals made to him daily to end their suffering with a pistol ball, although he could not bring himself to give them the relief they craved. On several occasions, when he saw that the case was altogether beyond hope, and that but a few hours of mortal agony remained, he yielded to their entreaties, handed them one of his pistols, and walked a few paces away till the sharp report told them that their suffering was over. The horrors of the hospital at Wilna and other places affected him even more than the scenes of carnage that he had witnessed at Borodino. At Wilna, the Earl of Tyrconnell was seized with a fever and died, and Frank lay for some time ill and would probably have succumbed had not Sir Robert obtained a lodging for him at the house of a landed resident, three or four miles from the infected city. He was, in a sense, thankful for the illness because it spared him the sight of the last agony of the broken remains of Napoleon's army. Quiet and rest soon did their work. The breakdown was the result more of over-fatigue and of the horrors of which he was so continually a witness than of actual fever. Frank, therefore, rapidly recovered and declared after a fortnight that he could again sit on his horse. The general, however, would not hear of this. I shall be leaving for St. Petersburg myself in a few days, he said, and we will travel together by post. You will be sorry to hear that today Kutoso has been decorated with the great order of St. George. The emperor himself begged me not to be present. He called me into his cabinet and confessed to me that it would be too humiliating to him were I to be there. He acknowledged that he felt by decorating this man with a great order, he was committing a trespass upon the institution, but he had no choice. It was a cruel necessity to which he had to submit, although he well knew that the marshal had done few things he ought to have done, with nothing against the enemy that he could avoid, and that all his successes had been forced upon him. Sir Robert himself had urgent need of change and rest. The responsibility upon his shoulders had been tremendous the emperor had relied upon him entirely for information as to the true state of things in the army and the russian generals regarding him especially the emperor's representative had poured their complaints into his ears had they but received the slightest encouragement from him, they would have led their divisions against the French in spite of the orders of the Marshal, and it was with the greatest difficulty that he persuaded them to restrain their exasperated troops and to submit to carry out the disastrous policy, which entailed as much loss and suffering upon the Russian soldiers as upon the French. It was the end of January when Sir Robert Wilson and Frank reached St. Petersburg and putting up in apartments assigned to them in the palace rested for a few days. One bright morning Frank strolled down to the nobles club of which he and the general had been made honorary members. It was his first visit to St. Petersburg. His fur coat was partly open and showed his British uniform. He was looking about with interest at the scene in the Nevsky Prospect when he noticed a gentleman in a handsomely appointed sledge looking fixedly at him. As the uniform attracted general attention, he thought little of this, but after going a short distance, the sledge turned and passed him at a slow rate of speed. The gentleman again gazed fixedly at him, then stopped the coachman and leaped from the sledge to the pavement. Frank, he exclaimed, is it you or am I dreaming? Frank stepped back a pace in astonishment. It was the voice rather than the face that he recognized. Julian burst from his lips. My brother, can it really be you? Julian held out both his hands and they stood for a moment in silence. Gazing into each other's face, Julian was the first to break the silence. Jump in here, Frank, he said, leading the way to the sledge they must all think that we have gone mad and we shall have a crowd round us in a minute still completely bewildered frank followed his brother drive out into the country julian said to the coachman as he took his seat this is a little short of a miracle old fellow he said as they drove off i thought you were living quietly in weymouth you thought i was riding in a french prison and here we run against each other in the heart of russia I can hardly believe even yet that it is you, Julian. You have altered so tremendously. Thank God, old man, that I have found you. Thank God, my dear Frank, that as I see that stupid business of mine has not prevented your entering the Army as I was afraid it would do. Though how you came to be here is more than I can guess. I am General Wilson's aide-de-camp and have been with him all through the war, and you, Julian, what on earth are you doing here? But first of all, I suppose you have not heard that you have been cleared completely of that charge of murder. Julian's face paled at the sudden news, and he sat for a minute or two in silence. Quite cleared, Frank, he asked in a low voice, cleared so that no doubt remains and that I can go home without fear of having it thrown into my face. Completely and entirely, Frank replied. You were cleared before you had been gone a day. The coroner's jury brought in an open verdict, but a warrant was issued against that Poucher Markham, and your letter first and his confession a year later completely bore out the evidence at the inquest and established his guilt beyond question. To think that I should never have known it, Julian said. If I had dreamt of it, I would have attempted to break out from verdun and make my way home i don't know that i should have succeeded but at any rate i should have tried but tell me all about it frank my story will keep just at present you seem to have fallen on your legs anyhow frank remarked may i ask if this is your imperial highness's sledge i have learned something of the value of furs since they came out here and that coat of yours is certainly worth a hundred pounds and this sable rug as much more it is not my sledge nor is it my rug though i have two or three of them quite as handsome the coat is my own the sledge belongs to my intimate friend count woronski with whom i am at present staying you really must tell me your story first frank said laughing now that you know you are cleared, you can very well wait to hear all the details, and I refuse to say a word until you have told me what all this means. Well, Frank, Julian said seriously, mine is not altogether a pleasant story to tell now, but I acted for the best and under the belief that there was no chance of my being able to return for years to England. The story is too long for me, to give you the details now, but I will give you the broad facts. I was sent prisoner to Verdun. I was there about 10 months. There was fever in the place, and we died off like sheep. There seemed no possibility of escape, and if I could have got away, I could not, as I thought, make for England. I was getting hopeless and desperate, and I don't think I could have held out much longer. Then there was an offer made to us that any of us who liked could obtain freedom by enlisting in the French army. It was expressly stated that it was going east, and that at the end of the campaign, we should, if our corps was ordered to a place where it was likely to come in contact with the English, be allowed to exchange into a regiment with another destination. Well, it seemed to me that it mattered very little what became of me. Even should I be exchanged and sent to England, I could not have stayed there, but must have gone abroad to make my living as best I could, and I thought I might as well go as a soldier to Russia as anywhere else. So I accepted the offer, little knowing what would come of it. I regretted it heartily when I saw the misery that was inflicted by the misconduct, partly of the French, but much more of the Poles and Germans, on the unfortunate inhabitants. However, there I was, and i did my duty to the best of my power when i tell you that i was in knave's division you may imagine that i had my share of it all extraordinary frank said to think that you and i should both have been through this campaign and on opposite sides why we must have been within a musket shot of each other a score of times i have no doubt i saw you julian said for i often made out a bit of scarlet among the dark masses of the russians and thought that there must be some english officers with them the first time i noticed them was on the heights opposite to smolensk two officers in scarlet were there with the batteries they planted there and drove our own off the hill on our side of the river those were the general and myself julian we had only joined two days before, but still I am as much in the dark as ever. What you have said explains how you come to be in Russia, but it does not at all explain how you came to be here like this. It was on the day after we got past the Russians. It was a strong place with a hard name, Jarom, something or other. The next day, as we were marching along, we came across an overturned carriage. A coachman and a woman were lying dead. On nearing it, I heard a little cry, and I stepped out from the side of my company. I was a sergeant and was marching on the flank, and I found among the cushions a little girl about six years old. She was already almost frozen to death. I fastened her onto my back under my cloak and carried her along with me. She came round, and was a dear little creature. Well, I carried her all through the retreat. Sometimes, when there was an alarm, I had time to stow her away in one of the wagons. When there was not, she went on my back into the middle of the fighting, and you know that was pretty rough occasionally. However, we both of us seemed to possess a charm against balls. We got on all right until the day before we were to arrive at the Bereznia, Then I went out foraging with some companions. They got into a hut, lit a fire, and would not leave, so I started alone with her. I lost my way and was found by a lot of peasants who would have made very short work of me, but the child stepped forward like a little queen and told them that she was the countess of Wuronski and that her father was a friend of the czar's and that if they sent us to him they would get a great reward thinking that it was good enough they took us to their village and dressed me up in a peasant's clothes kept us there a fortnight then the headman and the village papa came with us here by post the child's father and mother had given her up as dead and their gratitude to me is boundless it has been deemed unadvisable to say anything about my ever being with the french and i am simply introduced by the court as an english gentleman whom he regards as his very dear friend i sent letters home to you and Aunt a fortnight since and if i had heard that the charge of murder was still hanging over me i should probably have remained here for good The count has already hinted that there is an estate at my disposal. He is as rich as Croesus, and he and the countess would be terribly hurt if I were to refuse to accept their tokens of gratitude. They have no other child but Stephanie, and she is, of course, the apple of their eye. Well, you have had luck, Julian. I do think that if you once got out of prison... You would be likely to fall upon your feet because you always had the knack of making yourself at home anywhere. But I had no idea of anything like this. Well, I don't think you are to blame for having entered the fresh service rather than remaining a prisoner, especially as you were, as far as you knew, cut off from returning home. Still, I agree with you that it is as well not to talk about it at present. It is marvelous to think that you were with Ney through all that fighting. The doings of the rear guard were, I can assure you, the subject of the warmest admiration on the part of the Russians. Sir Robert Wilson considers that the retreat from Smolensk was one of the most extraordinary military exploits ever performed. And so you were made a sergeant after Borodino? Well, Julian, to win your stripes among such a body as Nay led is no slight honor. I received another, Frank. Not so much for valor as for taking things easy. He took from his pocket the cross of the Legion of Honor. This, Frank, is an honor Napoleon sent to me, and nay pinned on my breast. I would rather that it had been Wellington who had sent it and say Picton who pinned it on, but it is a big honor none the less, and at any rate it was not won in fighting against my own countrymen. This document it is wrapped up in is the official guarantee that I received on enlisting, listing that I should under no circumstances, whatever, be called upon to serve against the English. You have a right to be proud of the cross, Julian. I should be proud of it myself. British officer as I am, but how do you say that you got it for taking things easy? It was not exactly for taking things easy, but for keeping up the men's spirits. Discipline was getting terribly relaxed, and they were losing their military bearing altogether. A lot of us non-commissioned officers were talking round the fire, and I suggested that we should start marching songs again, as we used to do on our way through Germany. It would cheer the men up, get them to march in military order and time, and shorten the road. Ney and some of his staff happened to be within hearing and he praised the idea much more than it deserved. However, the men took it up and the effect was excellent. Other regiments followed our example and there can be no doubt that for a time it did have a good effect. Ney reported the business to Napoleon who issued an order praising the Grenadiers of the Rhone for the example they had set the army bestowing the legion of honour on me and ordering that henceforth marching songs should be sung throughout the army however singing was dropped at smolensk after leaving there we were reduced to such a handful that we had not the heart to sing But it did its work, for I believe that the improvement effected by the singing in the morale of Ney's troops had at least something to do with our being able to keep together and to lessen the fatigues of those terrible marches. Now tell me more about yourself. How was it that you had the wonderful luck to be chosen to accompany Sir Robert Wilson as his aide-de-camp? It was to his suggestion when I first joined Julian and to nearly a year's steady work on my part. He got me gazetted into his old regiment, the 15th Light Dragoons, and at the same time told me that if, as was already anticipated, Russia broke off her alliance with Napoleon, he was likely to be offered his former position of British commissioner at the Russian headquarters. He said that if by the time that came off, I had got up russian he would apply for me to go with him so i got hold of a russian pole in london a political exile a gentleman an awfully good fellow i took him with me down to canterbury where our depot was and worked five or six hours a day with him steadily so that when at the outbreak of the war sir robert got his appointment He was able to ply for me upon the ground that I had a thoroughly good colloquial knowledge of Russian. You always were a beggar to work, Frank, his brother said admiringly. I worked for a bit myself pretty hard at Verdun and got up French well enough to pass with. But then, you see, there was no other mortal thing to do, and I knew that it would be useful to me if I ever saw a chance of escape. Of course, at that time I had no idea of enlisting but it must have been a different thing altogether, for a young officer to give up every amusement as you must have done, and to slave away at a cracked jaw language like Russian. It required a little self-denial, I have no doubt, Julian, but the work itself soon became pleasant. You may remember in the old days you used to say that I could say no while you could not. That is true enough, Frank. I was a great ass in those days, but I think that now I have learnt something. I should think you have, Julian, Frank said, looking closely at his brother. The expression on your face has very much changed, and you certainly look as if you could say no very decidedly now. By this time they had, after a long drive, re-entered the city. You must come home with me first, Frank. I must introduce you to the Count and Countesses and to Stephanie. Then tomorrow morning you must come round early. I have heard nothing yet as to how the truth about the murder came out so rapidly. It seemed to me that the evidence was conclusive against me and that even the letter that I wrote telling you about it was so improbable that no one but you and Aunt would credit in the slightest." It did look ugly at first, Julian. When I heard Faulkner's deposition, I could see no way out of it whatever. I could not suppose that a dying man would lie. And absolutely sure of your innocence as I was, could make neither head nor tail of the matter. I could not suppose that a dying man would lie. I could Leaving not their fur coats in the and hall, they went upstairs. They lie. found the countess seated in an armchair. The Count was reading the last gazette from the army to her, and Stephanie was playing with a doll. The Count and his wife looked surprised as Julian entered with a young English officer. I have the honor, Countess, Julian said, to present to you my brother, who is aide de camp to the English general Sir Robert Wilson, whom he accompanied throughout the campaign. "'Count, you will, I am sure, rejoice with me in this unexpected meeting. "'We are glad, indeed, to make the acquaintance of the brother of our dear friend,' the Countess said, "'holding out her hand to Frank. "'I regret, Countess, that I am not able to reply to you in French,' Frank said in Russian. "'I had thought that Russian would be absolutely necessary here, "'but I find that almost everyone speaks French.' Had I known that, I could have saved myself a good deal of labor, for to us your language is very difficult to acquire. You speak it extremely well, Mr. Wyatt, the count said. I could scarcely imagine how you have acquired such familiarity with it in your own country. I learned it from a Russian Pole, a political exile, with whom I worked for about six hours a day for nearly 12 months, in order that I might qualify myself to accompany. Sir Robert Wilson. This is my little friend Stephanie, Frank, Julian said, lifting the child up on his shoulder, her favourite place. And this is my nurse Julian, the child said with a laugh. Isn't he a big nurse? He is big, Frank agreed, looking up at him. I feel quite small beside him. He was always a great deal taller than I was, and he has grown a good bit since I saw him last but he looks rather big for a nurse. He is not too big at all, Stephanie said earnestly. He could never have carried me so far if he had not been very big and strong, could he, Papa? No, Stephanie, though I think goodness of heart it has much to do with it, as strength of body. Your brother has, of course, told you, Mr. Wyatt, how deep an obligation he has laid us under. He said that he had the good fortune to find your little girl and that he took her along with him in the retreat, but he seemed to consider that the service she did him when they fell among the Russian peasants quite settled matters between them. Doubtless they mutually saved each other's lives. Mr. Wyatt, the Count, said gravely, The one act was momentary and without risk. The other was done at the cost of labor and sacrifice daily and hourly for nearly a month you have been through the campaign and know how frightful were the sufferings how overwhelming the exhaustion of the soldiers you can judge then how terrible was the addition to a soldier's labors to have to carry a child like that for so long when his own strength was hourly weakening and when every additional pound of weight told heavily upon him the tears come into the eyes of the countess and myself every time we think of it it was an act of self-devotion beyond words, altogether beyond the understanding of those who know not how terrible were the sufferings endured on the march. They were indeed terrible, Count Frank said gravely. It was agony for me to witness them, and I cannot but share you wonder how my brother supported the extra weight, even of your little daughter, and came through it safely while tens of thousands of men not so burdened fell and died along the road. Julian did not understand what was being said, but he guessed by their faces what they were speaking of. I suppose you are saying that it was hard work carrying the child. He broke in in English. But I can tell you that I believe it, it aided me to get through. It gave me something to think of besides the snow, the distance, and the Russians. She was always cheerful and bright. Her merry talk lightened away. But in addition to that, the warmth of her body against my back by day and curled up in my arms at night greatly helped keep life in me. I think that it was largely due to her that I got through safely where many men as strong as myself died. The count looked inquiringly at Frank, who translated what Julian had said. He smiled. Your brother is determined to try to make out that the obligation is all on his side but it will not do there is the simple fact that we have our little daughter again safe and sound if it had not been for him she would have been lost to us forever julian went down to the door with frank Course, you will tell the general all about it frank i suppose he knows something of the circumstances under which i went away as he was a friend of our father's and got you your commission and takes such an interest in you i dare say he will be shocked to hear that i have been carrying a french musket but i am not ashamed of it myself and consider that under the circumstances i was perfectly justified in doing so come round in the morning the first thing after breakfast i have yet to learn all about how you found out that markham committed murder and then you can tell me too what the general says on going upstairs julian told his host he had been completely cleared of the charge that had hung over him and darkened his life and that there was nothing to prevent him from returning to england they expressed much gratification at the news but at the same time said that for themselves they could not but regret that this would prevent their having the pleasure they looked forward to of having settled near them this however we must talk about again, the Count said. At any rate, I hope that you will, from time to time, come over to stay for a while with us and Stephanie. That I will assuredly do, Count. Juliet said wobbly. I do not quite know at present what I shall do. As I have told you, I shall, in addition to my share of my father's money, inherit some from my aunt, and shall be able, if I chose, to buy a small estate and settle down. I am too old to go into the army now, but besides, I think that ere long this European struggle will be over, and in that case there will be nothing for a soldier to do. Still, in any case, I shall be able occasionally to make a voyage here. I can assure you that will be one of my greatest pleasures to do so. Sir Robert Wilson was greatly surprised when he heard from Frank of his meeting with his brother and of the adventures through which he had passed. I do not blame him in any way, he said. Had he been a king soldier or sailor, the matter would have been altogether different. To have entered a foreign army then would have been a breach of his oaths. But as a private individual, he was free to take service abroad, as tens of thousands of English, Scotch, and Irish have done before him. It would, of course, have been much better had he entered the army of a power friendly to England, but the document that he received on enlisting goes far to absolve him from any responsibility in the matter. At any rate, he was not a deserter and seeing that he could not go back to England, even if he escaped, that he was practically friendless in the world and that had he not acted as he did he might have died at Verdun, I do not think that even a severe moralist would be able to find any fault with his decision. So he was one of Ney's heroes. Well Frank, when this war is over and the bitterness between the two nations has passed away, he will have good cause to feel proud of having been one of that unconquerable band. No troops have ever gained greater glory by victory than they have by retreat. Besides, to have won his stripes in such company, and to have received a legion of honor from Ney is as high an honor as any soldier could wish for. At the same time, I think that he and his friends have done wisely in keeping silence as to the part he played. It might have led to all sorts of troubles. Had it been known, he might have been claimed as a prisoner of war, and even if this had not been done, he might have been embroiled in quarrels with hot-headed young Russians, and it is scarcely probable, Frank, that he is such a dead shot with the pistol as you are. The next morning, Julian heard from Frank full details of the matter in which the truth had been arrived at of the circumstances of Mr. Faulkner's murder. By Jove, Frankie explained when his brother brought the story to a conclusion. You ought to have been a bow street runner. I don't think how it all occurred to you. Thinking it over, as I have done hundreds of times, it never once occurred to me that the footprints in the snow might prove that I had set off in pursuit of Markham and that they would have shown that he was standing behind that tree whence the shot was fired while i went straight from the road to the place where faulkner was lying what a head you have old fellow it was simple enough julian i was certain that you had not committed the murder and it was therefore clear that someone else must have done so then came the question first how faulkner had come to charge you as he had done and second how and why you had disappeared the only conceivable explanation that i could find was that you must have run into the wood, caught sight of the murderer, followed him up. Directly we found your footprints on the snow overlapping his made that a certainty. We had only then to go into the wood and pick up the whole story bit by bit. For a time, I certainly thought that you had been killed by the friends of the man that you had followed. You may imagine what a relief it was to us when your letter came and now, old fellow, I suppose you will be going home. Sir Robert has told me that he will be willing to give me leave at once, and that he considers I ought to have a thorough rest to get the seeds of that horrible hospital fever out of my blood. Therefore, I am ready to start with you whenever you are ready to go he does not know yet whether he will continue as commissioner here when the campaign recommences in the spring but there is little doubt that he will do so and in that case i shall rejoin as soon as the weather breaks sufficiently for operations to commence i got my lieutenancy three months ago owing to the vacancies made in the regiment during the campaign in spain And Sir Robert has been good enough to speak so strongly of my services here that I have every chance of getting another step before I return. I see no reason why I should not start at the end of the week, Frank. Of course, I am extremely comfortable here, but now that I know I can go back all right, I am longing to be home again. Indeed, I should soon get tired of having nothing to do but to drive about and eat dinners here, and besides, I cannot but feel that I am in a false position and am very anxious to get out of it. Frank nodded. I quite understand that, old fellow, and I agree with you thoroughly. A question might be asked any day that you could not reply to without saying how you came to be here, and for the sake of the Count, as well as yourself, that should be avoided if possible. The Count was loud in his expressions of regret when he heard that Julian was about to leave with his brother at once. But when Julian urged that he was constantly in fear that some chance question might be asked, and that the falseness of his position weighed heavily upon him, the Count could not but admit the justice of the view he took. Preparations were immediately begun for departure they were to travel by sledge through Finland, passing through Viborg to Abo, and there to cross the Gulf of Bothnia to the Swedish coast, a full miles north of Stockholm, and to travel across country to Gothenburg. The Count placed one of his traveling carriages on runners at their disposal as far as Abo, and insisted on sending one of his own servants with them to attend to their wants on the road. Stephanie was inconsolable at the approach of the departure of a friend, and even the promise that he would return and pay them another visit before very long, scarcely pacified her. In three days, all was ready. The luggage, packed in a light wagon, had been sent off in charge of one of the Count's servants 48 hours before, and the traveling carriage had but to take three or four great hampers stored with provisions and wines. The Count and Countess had had on the previous day a long talk with Frank, who, at their request, called in an hour when Julian would be out, paying a long round of farewell visits. The conversation was a serious one, and had ended by the Count saying, "You see, Mister Wyatt, nothing will alter the determination of the Countess." and myself in this matter, and if you had not consented to accept our commission and to carry out our wishes, we should have had no course open but to communicate with our embassy in London and to request them to appoint someone to act as our agent in this matter. This would not have been so satisfactory, for the agent would, of course, have been ignorant of your brother's tastes and wishes, whereas you will be able to learn from him exactly the position that would be most agreeable. All we ask is that you will not go below the minimum we have named, and the more you exceed it, the better. We shall be pleased, you know well, how we feel in this matter, and that anything that can be done in this way and will still fall very far short of the measure of gratitude we feel towards your brother. I will carry out the commission that you have given me to the best of my abilities, Count, and will endeavor to act as if my brother were an entire stranger. Thank you greatly, Mr. Wyatt. I agree with you that if you dismiss altogether from your mind the fact that your brother is interested in the matter, and that you regard yourself as simply carrying out a business transaction as our agent, it will simplify matters greatly. I don't wish you to have the trouble of the actual details i shall write myself to our ambassador who is a personal friend of mine and request him as soon as he hears from you to instruct an english lawyer to carry out all the business part of the arrangement the journey across finland was a very pleasant one both were in high spirits the cloud that had hung over julian had been dispelled and frank's constant anxiety about him had been laid to rest they had gone safely through the most wonderful campaign of modern times and were now on their way home julian's supply of money was untouched save for the purchases of a variety of presents for his aunt they travelled only by day the carriage was constructed with all conveniences for sleeping in and went on their arrival at the end of the day's journey they returned from a stroll down the town to an excellent dinner prepared by their servant they had but to turn in for a comfortable night's rest in the vehicle at abo they found their baggage awaiting them by Jove, julian frank said laughing as he looked at the great pile of trunks in the post house one would think you were carrying the whole contents of a household these modest tin cases comprise my share of that pile it is tremendous julian said ruefully i feel quite ashamed to turn up with such an amount of baggage the first thing we must do as soon as we get back is to effect the division i am afraid that my outside clothes will be of no use to you they would require entire remaking but all the other things will fit you as well as me and i do believe there are enough to last me my lifetime, and it will be downright charity to relieve me of some of them. You may imagine my stupefaction when I come back one day to the Counts and found my room literally filled with clothes. I will help you a bit, Frank laughed. The campaign has pretty well destroyed all my kit, and I shan't be too proud to fill up from your abundance. They found that the servants who had preceded them with the baggage had already made all the arrangements for their crossing the gulf. The extreme cold had everywhere so completely frozen the sea that there was no difficulty in crossing, which they learned was not often the case. Three sledges had been engaged for their transport. The distance was about a 120 miles, but it was broken by the islands of the land archipelago, and upon one or the other of these, they could take refuge in the event of any sudden change of weather. They were to start at midnight and would reach Bomarsund on the main island of the land on the following evening, wait there for 24 hours to rest the animals, and would reach the mainland the next day. The frost continued unbroken, and they crossed the gulf without difficulty, traveled rapidly across Sweden, and reached England without adventure of any kind. They waited for a day in London. Frank carried dispatches from Sir Robert Wilson and was occupied at the war office all day having a very long interview with the minister to whom he gave a much more detailed account of the campaign than had been given in the general's reports. The minister expressed much satisfaction at the information he afforded and said at the conclusion of the interview. Sir Robert has spoken several times as to your services, and I am happy to inform you that your name will appear in the next gazette as promoted to the rank of captain. I consider that the manner in which you devoted yourself to the acquisition of the Russian language was most highly meritorious, and I wish that many young officers would similarly acquire foreign or oriental languages." I trust that you will thoroughly recover your health so as to be able to rejoin Sir Robert Wilson by the time that the troops have taken the field again. The campaign is likely to be a most important and We have great grounds for hoping a final one. Before leaving the building, Frank found out where Strelinsky was at work. He was engaged in translating a mass of Russian documents. He rose from his seat with an exclamation of delight when he saw frank who after a short chat asked him to come that evening to his hotel he there learned that the pole was getting on very well his knowledge of german as well as of russian had been very valuable to him his salary had already been raised and he was now at the head of a small department having two of his countrymen and three germans under him and his future in the office was quite assured The work is somewhat hard, he said, for when a ship comes in from Germany or Russia, we are often at work all night, sometimes eight and forty hours at a stretch, but we are all paid overtime. The work is pleasant and interesting, and your officials are good enough to say that we get through a wonderful amount in the time, and the minister has twice expressed his approbation to me. Ah, Mr. Wyatt, how much do I owe to you and the good general? I owe fully as much to you as you owe to me, Strilinski," Frank said, putting aside the interest there had been in witnessing such mighty events. It had been a splendid thing for me in my profession. I shall be gazetted captain this week when I am pretty sure of a brevet majority at the end of the next campaign and further employment in the same line afterwards. Julian was not present at the interview. He had never been in London before, and spending the day in strolling through the streets and visiting the principal sites had gone to a theatre leaving Frank to talk with the Pole. The latter had not left when Julian returned. He and Frank had found such an abundance of subjects to talk about that they were scarcely aware how the time had passed. The latter proposed that they should go to one of the fashionable taverns to supper. Julian would have excused himself, but Frank insisted on his accompanying him. As they were sitting there, two gentlemen passed by their table. One of them stared hard at Frank, and then, with an angry exclamation, turned away. Then Strelinsky said, "'This is your old antagonist, unless I am mistaken, Mr. Wyatt. You pointed him out to me once when I was in barracks with you, and I thought I remembered his face.' That empty sleeve assures me that it is him. Frank nodded. What is that, Julian? Oh, it is nothing, his brother said hastily. No, no, Mr. Wyatt. It was a grand thing. Had not your brother told you of it, Mr. Julian? No, he has told me nothing about an antagonist. You do not know, then, that Mr. Frank may claim to be the finest pistol shot in the British Army. Julian looked at his brother in astonishment. I did not know that you had ever fired a pistol in your life, Frank. I practiced very hard when I was at Canterbury, Frank answered. I suppose that I had a good eye for it, and certainly came to me what you would call a good shot. Though I dare say there are others just as good. I got involved in a quarrel with the man who has just passed me, who was captain in the Lancers, and a notorious bully and duelist. We went out, I hit him in the hand, and he has lost his arm above the elbow, and there was the end of it. Perhaps you would be kind enough to tell me a little more, Mr. Strelinsky, Julian said, turning to the pole. And, in spite of a growl from Frank that there was nothing to tell, the pole related the whole circumstance of the quarrel, the feeling that had been excited by it, Frank's expressed determination not to inflict serious injury, upon the man but to carry away his trigger finger only and so to put an end to his duels in the future and the manner in which his intention was carried out well i congratulate you frank very heartily julian said when strelinski had finished why on earth did you not tell me about this before really, Julian, there was nothing to tell about. It was a disagreeable incident altogether, and I considered then, as I have considered since, that it was hardly fair of me to go out with him when I was so certain of my shooting, and it was a hundred to one in my favor. I should never have done it if he had not forced the quarrel upon young Wilmington, for the young fellow must either have gone out, which would have been throwing away his life or left the service. Unfair, my dear Frank, why the man himself has always relied upon his superior skill and you were able to beat him in his own game. Well, I wish I could shoot as well. However, as I am not going to do any more soldiering, I don't know that it would be of much use to me. Still, I should like to be able to do it. The next morning they started by coach for Weymouth leaving Julian's heavier luggage to follow by carrier wagon. Mrs. Troutbeck's joy, when her two nephews arrived together for a time completely overpowered her and smelling salts and other restoratives had to be brought into play before she recovered. The event created quite an excitement in Weymouth. The appearance of Frank's name so frequently in Sir Robert Wilson's dispatches had been a source of pride to the whole town, and especially to his old school fellows, while the clearing up of the mystery that had so long hung over Julian's fate was no less interesting. The sympathy with him was so great and general that no one was surprised or shocked that, under the circumstances, he had been driven to enlist in the French army and had taken part in the Russian campaign. Indeed, the fact that he had been one of Ney's celebrated division, whose bravery had excited general admiration, was considered a feather in his cap, especially when it became known that he had been awarded the cross of the Legion of Honor by Napoleon himself. Had not the brothers received the proposal most unfavorably, a public dinner would have got up to celebrate their return. Well, Julian, you have to settle what you mean to do it yourself, Frank said one day. You can never settle down here without any occupation, whatever, after what you have gone through. No, I quite feel that, Frank. I have had enough of soldiering. That one campaign is enough for a lifetime. I really can hardly make up my mind what to do. Aunt was speaking to me yesterday afternoon when you were out. The dear old soul said that it was nonsense for me to wait for her death wasting my life here, and that she was anxious to hand me over, at once, half her money. She said that that would be £10,000, and with £8,000, my share of father's money, I could then buy an estate. It would be the best thing you could do, Julian, but of course there is no hurry about it. What part of the country would you prefer to settle in? I don't know, Frank. I have never thought much about it. I don't think I should choose anywhere near Weymouth. I would rather go to a flatter country, and a better wooded one. If I bought land, I should like to have land that I could cultivate myself, so as to give me an interest in it. And I should like, after a time, to be on the bench, which would give one a good deal of occupation. I suppose I shall marry some day, and so would prefer to be within reach of a town. I should think, from what you say, the country, round canterbury must be pretty there is a garrison there dover is within reach and it is a good deal more handy for getting up to town than it is from here however as you say there is plenty of time for me to think about that mrs troutback was as julian had predicted astounded upon the arrival of his baggage i never saw such a thing she exclaimed As trunk after trunk was carried into the house that Russian count of yours, Julian, must be a little cracked. I should think, why, my dear boy, if you were to get stout, what in the world would you do with all these things? That is a contingency I have never thought of, at. You quite frighten me. I must go in for a course of severe exercise to prevent the chance of such a thing occurring. You might take up shooting mrs Troutback said doubtfully, and I am sure that at present there is not a gentleman round who would not be glad to give you a day's shooting. I have done enough shooting, aunt, Julian said gravely. It was the means of my getting into a bad scrape here. In Russia, it was often part of my duty to shoot dying horses, to say nothing of shooting men and I have no desire ever to take a gun in my hand again. I have looked up my old friend Bill and shall take to sailing again, but I promise you that I will keep clear of smugglers. Two days later, Frank announced his intention of going up to London for a few days, as he thought he had better offer to be of any assistance he could at the war office. He was away for nearly three weeks, and on his return mentioned that he had run down to Canterbury, and had seen some of his old friends at the depot a fortnight later he received a bulky letter from town and in the course of the day asked his aunt if she felt equal to taking a journey with him a journey my dear she repeated in surprise where do you want to go to well aunt i want to go to london in the first place we will travel by post chaise, so that everything will be comfortable afterwards we may go somewhere else I can't tell you anything about it now. It is a little secret, but I do very much want you and Julian to go with me. Then, of course, we will, my dear, the old lady said. I should very much like to visit London again and see the theaters and shows. What do you say, Julian? Of course I will go, Aunt, though I can't think what Frank has got in his head. Still, I am very tired of Weymouth, and it would be a change. I was saying to Dick Halliburne, yesterday, that unless I could hit on something to do, I should have to ask them if they would let me go to school again. Six days later, they drove up in a post-chase to a fine mansion some three miles from Canterbury. Julian's astonishment at Frank's mysterious proceedings had been growing ever since they left Weymouth. Who on earth are we going to see here, he asked as he approached the mansion. Restrain your impatience for a few minutes longer, Julian. Then you shall know all about it. The mansion, I may tell you, belongs to a friend of mine. It is the center of an estate of some 2,000 acres, and its rent roll is about 3,000 a year. Very nice indeed, Julian said. Well, I won't ask any more questions till we get there a gentleman appeared at the door as the carriage drove up he shook hands warmly with frank who introduced him to his companions as mr james linton solicitor to the russian embassy the gentleman led the way to a very handsome drawing-room then he looked inquiringly at frank who nodded from a mahogany box on the table mr linton produced a large packet of papers mr he said to julian it is my pleasant duty To present you with these documents they are the title deeds of this mansion and the surrounding property in purchasing them i have followed out the instructions of count and have had the benefit of the assistance of your brother in selecting an estate that would he thought from its situation be agreeable to you julian looked at the speaker as if unable to take in the sense of the words I beg your pardon, he said, hesitating. I don't think I quite understand you. It is as I said, Mr. Wyatt. Count Wieronski wrote to me expressing his desire to present you with his estate here, as of a slight token, as he expressed it, of the enormous obligation on which you have placed him and the Countess, his wife. I may say that his instructions to me would have authorized the purchase of a much larger estate than this, but he begged me to be guided by the advice of your brother, Captain Wyatt, in the matter. And the latter obliged me by taking the responsibility of choosing an estate off my hands and has selected this. My part in the business had therefore been confined to carrying out the legal part in the matter and completing the purchase. My dear Frank, Julian said, this is monstrous. I have already carried out the wishes of the Count, Julian He and the Countess had a long conversation with me, and it was with some reluctance that I accepted the mission to select an estate for you. And only because he said that if I refused, he should have to request the Russian ambassador to ask one of his secretaries to do so, and that it would be very much more satisfactory to him that the place chosen should be in point of situation and other respects just what you would yourself like. I am overpowered, Mr. Linton. It has all come upon me so much by surprise that I do not know what I ought to say or do. There can be no doubt what you ought to do, the solicitor replied. Count Woranski is a very wealthy nobleman. You have rendered to him and his wife one of the greatest services one man can render to another. The count mentioned in his letter, that had you remained in Russia, it was his intention to transfer one of his estates to you, and the smallest of them is of much greater value than this. As to your refusing the gift, it is, if I may say so, impossible. Nothing could exceed the delicacy with which the count has arranged the business, and he would naturally feel deeply hurt were you to hesitate to accept this token of his gratitude. I'm sure you must see that for yourself. I do indeed see it, Julian said, and I feel that it would be not only ungrateful but wrong for me to refuse this noble gift. But you will admit that it is natural that I should for a time be overwhelmed by it. I am not so ungracious as to refuse so magnificent a present. Although I feel that it is altogether disproportionate, not to the service I was fortunate enough to render, but to my action in rendering it. Well, Mr. Lytton, I can only thank you for the part you have taken in the matter. Of course, I shall write at once to the Count and Countess, expressing my feelings as to this magnificent gift, and will send the letter to the Embassy to be forwarded at the first possible opportunity. And now, what is the next thing to be done? For I feel almost incapable of forming any plans at present. I would suggest, Mr. Wyatt, that in the first place, you should drive round your estate. There are horses and carriages in the stable. The estate has only been advertised a day or two before your brother came up to town, and the purchase included the furniture, horses, and carriages, and the livestock on the home farm i engaged the coachmen grooms and gardeners to remain until at least you should decide whether to take them into your service i should suggest also that after driving round the place you should return to canterbury for the night beyond an old man and his wife who are in charge of the house i have not made any arrangements thinking it better to leave that to you and mrs troutbeck You will have to move here, you know, Aunt. Frank said, I gave orders before we came away from Weymouth to Mary to lock up the house and to come up to town by the coach two days later and then to come on to Canterbury. I have no doubt that we shall find her at the fountain when we get there. I dare say you will be able to hear of some good servants at the hotel. You have taken away my breath altogether, Frank, Mrs. Troutbeck said. However, I am too bewildered to think for myself, and for the present must do whatever you tell me. Before Frank started three weeks later to rejoin Sir Robert Wilson, he had the satisfaction of seeing Julian comfortably established in his new position and setting down to the life. He himself went through the tremendous campaign that brought about the conclusion of the war and the downfall of Napoleon, and was present at the great battles of Lutzen, Bautzen, Reichenbach, Dresden, Combe, and Leipzig. At the termination of the war, he received the rank of brevet major and the appointment of military attache to the British embassy in Russia. He remained there for some years and then retired from the army with the rank of colonel. Mrs. Troutbeck had by this time passed away, having first had the pleasure of seeing a mistress install the Julians. The latter was now a justice of the peace and one of the most popular landowners in the country. Mrs. Troutback, at Julian's earnest request, left the whole of her property to Frank, nor could the latter persuade his brother to take any share of it. Frank had no inclination for a country life and settled down near London, where after a time he too married. He then went in for politics and was returned for a kentish constituency although he took no more prominent part in party politics he became one of the recognized authorities in the house on all matters connected with the affairs of eastern europe and took a lively interest in the movements set on foot for the benefit of the british soldier julian kept his promise to the count and for many years went over occasionally to stay with him his wife accompanied him until the cares of raising a family detained her at home to the end of their lives neither frank nor he ever regretted that they had taken part in the memorable campaign in russia end of chapter 16 recording by gary Oman, century village west palm beach florida End of Through Russian Snows by G.A. Henty.